You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. It's Tuesday, July the 7th, and European Union leaders meet in Brussels this evening for an emergency summit to discuss the Greek crisis. The meeting follows Sunday's resounding victory for the no side in Greece's referendum on the bailout terms demanded by the country's creditors. Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras, who led the No campaign, returns to Brussels with a strengthened mandate to negotiate and with declarations of support from the main opposition parties. But Greek banks remain closed as emergency funding from the European Central Bank dwindles to a trickle. So what are the chances of a deal in Brussels? How far apart are the two sides? Is a Greek exit from the euro now more likely than ever? And what are the consequences for Europe if Greece does leave? To discuss all this, I'm joined from Brussels by our European correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, from Athens by foreign affairs correspondent, Ruan McCormick, and here in studio by the Irish Times foreign policy editor, Patrick Smith, managing editor, Cliff Taylor, and Irish Times columnist, Paul Gillespie. Suzanne Lynch, what's going on in Brussels right now? Do we have any idea uh, if uh, Mr Tsipras has arrived with a proposal or not? Hi, good, good afternoon, Dennis. Yeah, the um, meeting of the Eurogroup finance ministers has just uh, begun at this lunchtime here in Brussels. And already the summit that's taking place this evening has been put back by a half an hour. It's due to start at 6.30 p.m. Now, finance ministers, including Michael Noonan, have been speaking on their way into this Eurogroup meeting, which will be attended by the new Greek finance minister. They said, um, really, they said the ball is in Greece's court, that they're looking forward uh, to hearing about their proposals, and they are expecting the finance minister to present the proposal proposals before Tsipras presents those to the leaders this evening. Um, everyone is kind of saying here that, um, you know, they are willing to keep Greece in the euro, that that's what people want. Um, but also the issue that I think is becoming more and more relevant and will be in the next few weeks is the question of debt relief. So a number of finance ministers were asked about debt relief, but um, the Finnish prime minister, the Slovak finance minister seems to say debt write-down and nominal write-down in the debt is not on the cards at all. Um, but I would say we're, we're going to see some discussion on debt reprofiling or debt restructuring. Um, Michael Noonan himself said Ireland was in favour of debt uh, reprofiling for Greece, and he named the various um, mechanisms Ireland used during its own bailout to reduce uh, the debt burden, the promissory notes, the repayment of the IMF loan and refinancing of that, and the extension of the maturities. So um, it remains to be seen what Greece would be looking for in terms of any promise of debt relief um, in, in today's meeting. And Suzanne, if we look at where we were before the Greek referendum happened and when the two sides were offering their various uh, proposals and rejecting them and then mm-hmm. accepting them or whatever, uh, in terms of the uh, of the actual uh, reforms that are demanded and the tax rises or spending cuts that are demanded, how far apart are the two sides? Well, you see, this is one of the tragedies, if you like, of, of the situation, that they weren't that far apart. I mean, really a lot of people saying it was never about the details of specific cuts to pensions or specific cuts to VAT. It was really a political decision on both sides whether they were prepared to go with these austerity measures. There was, there was a marginal difference between the two sides, and the facts are that both sides had made a significant um, you know, compromises. Now, I mean, the, the broader question of whether you think the Eurozone's policy of austerity for the last six years is the right method or not, but when you're talking about specific negotiations, they had been making progress. Now, officials are saying without a doubt that 
the third bailout programme will, of course, include some of the measures that were suggested in the second bailout proposal, i.e. contentious issues around pensions and VAT reform, um, also maybe looking at cuts to defence spending from Greece. So we'll probably be back into a situation where they're going to want some concessions from Greece on those issues. Those issues will be back on the table. So it remains to be seen if the Greek government now, with this, obviously with this mandate from this public, how far it's, it's prepared to go on these measures. So this is, uh, for many people, a little bit confusing as to whether we're talking about a second bailout or a third bailout. Uh, they were talking uh, in the last few weeks about the kind of the last tranche of cash from the second bailout. But there was always this idea that they were going to need a third bailout. Now that mm. we're back into these negotiations, the leaders today, what are they going to be talking about? Is it about a new package of uh, of money, a new package of reforms for Greece? Yes, you're, you're right. One of the problems is that when the second bailout expired on the 30th of June, um, the various EU figures have said the money that was available went with that, if you like. That has now expired, uh, the remaining tranche of loans. So they're saying you, know, you have to apply for a whole new third bailout with new conditions, and that would have to be sanctioned by the Eurogroup, all the, all the different finance ministries. Um, now, obviously, Greece is in, has got immediate short-term problems here. So some kind of a, we'll maybe see some kind of a temporary arrangement until a decision is made in the third bailout. That's one possibility. Although Michael Noonan himself said today, you know, we can't kick the can down the road for, for another one or two months. Um, so obviously the ECB is going to play a huge role here. Mario Draghi is in Brussels for these two meetings today. He has been on the phone to key players on this. So we're going to expect some kind of a coordinated response really from what the ECB does next and what uh, leaders decide here politically tonight. There's been a lot of criticism over the last few months of uh, the way in which Greece conducted the negotiations uh, with its creditors. And one of the issues that uh, that seems perhaps to have been a missed opportunity for them is that there appears to be some slight difference between, say, the uh, the leaders that are part of the centre-right uh, European People's Party group and those that are part of the centre-left socialists. Was, is there a kind of a gap between those two sides that Greece failed to capitalise on so far? Yes, that, that's very true. Um, we have the situation in, in European politics where you have these political groupings uh, through which a lot of policy is, is uh, ref- refracted, if you like. So it, it also breaks down in terms of countries. So obviously Germany, Ireland and other countries are in the centre-right group, the EPP. But the centre-left uh, governments like in France and Italy, they're in the, the S&D group. Now the EPP even today, they've put out a very strong statement um, about this, about the Greek uh, crisis um, and it's saying, you know, no other country has got through um, economic crisis without going through change and structural reforms. It criticises the Syriza government. So it's taken a quite a hard line. Um, now we're seeing definitely more softened language from the S&D group in the parliament. You know, the French and Italian MEPs there are central. Um, so yes, I mean, I think it's this kind of a divided perspective on how they're approaching. Now, how much power these political groups have in and of themselves is one question, but they definitely shape uh, the way uh, leaders approach the debate when they come into the meetings here in Brussels because typically they would meet in their groups before they arrived to the summit here. Rowan McCormick in Athens. Uh, from what we hear in uh, uh, from Athens, uh, there was uh, there were enormous scenes of euphoria and celebration after the resounding no vote in Sunday's referendum. But nonetheless, uh, the situation there appears to be... Uh, Uh, pretty critical in terms of the banks are still closed and the economy appears to be uh, slowly being strangled. 
That's true. If you take Athens where I am now, there's a gap between what you see on the surface, which is a calm, orderly, perfectly normal city, and what you find if you dig a little deeper and speak to people. And that's a place where uh, daily life has been turned on its head, in a, in a sense. Yes, the shops and cafes are open. Those who have jobs are at work. The traffic's as bad as it always was, uh, and tourists are still coming here in big numbers. But look at where we are. The banks have now been closed for a week, um, and because of the capital controls that the government imposed, account holders can only withdraw up to €60 a day. So what that means is that the flow of money into the real economy has slowed to a trickle, and some parts of the economy are grinding to a halt. What you find is that people are buying necessities. They're buying food, they're, they're buying petrol and so on, but they're not buying cars or furniture or anything, uh, any sort of big pieces of expenditure. Um, there have been some reports of shortages in shops and, and pharmacies. I don't think that's widespread, not from what I can see anyway, um, but we're told it exists as a problem. There have also been reports that some ATMs have been running out of 20 euro notes, um, but again, others will say that this affects certain branches at certain times of day. But clearly, it's a dire situation, and it has a, a deep psychological as well as material impact on people here. Uh, a lot of people are afraid, they're fearful, they don't know what's going to happen from, from day to day. And so that means that they can't make plans. They're not sure should they take their holidays, that sort of thing. I think this fear also cuts across political lines. Um, even the most ardent um, and passionate no voters in Sunday's referendum, people who voted no proudly and defiantly, they naturally feel concern about the state of their country. Um, actually, it's more than a concern. I think many Greeks are stunned by what's going on. Uh, yes, they've been through this huge trauma over the past five or six years, but the situation here today, an EU capital where the banks are shut, where the economy is on the brink of collapse, is, I think, a surreal and pretty alarming scene I think many people didn't think they'd ever see. Now, let's talk about the referendum for a moment. We uh, were told by the opinion polls that it was on a knife edge and indeed most of the polls at the end put the yes side ahead. Instead, it was a very, very uh, emphatic victory, 60-40 for the no side. Why did uh, the Greeks vote no and what did they mean by voting no? Well, firstly, people had different views about what this referendum was about. For Jean-Claude Juncker and others elsewhere in Europe, voters were deciding on Greece's future in the Eurozone. But I don't think the majority of Greeks saw it that way. Um, none of the no voters I met at the weekend said they were voting to force their country out of the Euro. Um, most people I met described themselves as pro-European. Some said their vote was a call for a greater democracy, for better terms, for lots of things, but not for Grexit. And this reflects what opinion polls have consistently told us, which is that Greek public opinion is firmly attached to Greece's place in the single currency area. I think a few things were at play. I think some people felt um, Greece had no more cards left to play and that the risk was worth taking. But they also felt um, emboldened in a sense. The IMF pointed out only a number of days before the referendum that um, Greece's debts were unsustainable, that there needed to be some sort of a deal in the long term on, on, on debt sustainability. There were huge demonstrations, particularly on the Friday night before the referendum. Um, people described it as the biggest protest that had been seen here in years on the no side. Um, and, and there was a momentum behind the no side that, that, that resulted in that 61% uh, no vote. Now, whether that vote actually brings us closer to Greece leaving the euro is another matter entirely. Um, and for that, we'll have to wait and see what happens over the next few days. But it certainly has had immediate political consequences here in Athens. 
Uh, firstly, it led to the resignation of Antonis Samaras, the former Prime Minister, as leader of the Conservative New Democracy Party. And the opposition now, or at least that part of it that called for a yes vote, is in disarray. And that in turn has bolstered the position of the Prime Minister, Alexis Tsipras, who has emerged from the referendum with his domestic standing enhanced and that of his party, Syriza, as well. And it's been interesting to watch what Cyprus has been doing and saying since Sunday. He's done a couple of things that have been particularly striking, and all of them suggest that he's trying to put himself in the best possible position to strike a deal with the creditors as soon as possible. First, he urged, um, well, he resisted the urge to, uh, to strike a triumphalist note after the referendum, and instead he gave this conciliatory, quite measured speech that was designed, I think, to tell the lenders that Greece was serious about working out a deal. Secondly, he, he accepted the resignation of his finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis, and in Athens this was widely seen as a preemptive concession to the creditors, given that Varoufakis has had this toxic relationship with some of his colleagues in the Eurogroup and was seen, at least by some of them, as an obstacle to a deal. Um, and he's been replaced by one of the Prime Minister's close allies, another academic economist named Euclid uh, Tsakalotos, and his arrival will bring a stylistic, if not necessarily a, a substantive change, to Greece's approach to the negotiations. So where Varoufakis was combative, where he was outspoken, Tsakalotos is soft-spoken, he's relatively low-key, but on the substance he's rooted in the same intellectual traditions of the Greek left. He's rooted in Syriza itself, he's been a member for a decade, and he's also been involved in the negotiations for the past few months. So you can expect uh, a certain degree of continuity. One other important thing that Cyprus has done, he did this yesterday, was he invited opposition leaders to a meeting at the presidential palace here in Athens. And this was unprecedented. They sat around the table for six or seven hours, and at the end of it, they produced a statement, in effect, lining up behind the government's efforts to reach a deal. They urged immediate steps to reopen banks, and they said that any deal must ease Greece's massive debt burden. And this was significant, I think, because it has shown the creditors that the chances of installing a more amenable government in Athens are now re more remote than they were a week or two ago. But it also, by getting this buy-in from the opposition, means that Cyprus may end up being less reliant on the far left wing of his own party if a deal comes to a parliamentary vote this week or next week. Now, Suzanne was mentioning that uh, there is not much of an appetite in Europe, the rest of Europe, for a debt write-down for Greece, a, nom a write-down of the, of the, the nominal uh, sum of the, uh, that's owed, but that there could be some uh, negotiations about a reprofiling of the debt, spreading it out over a longer period and reducing the interest rate so the burden is less onerous. Would that be enough for uh, Tsipras to go home with? It could be. I mean, I, I agree entirely that the big obstacle um, still on the table is debt relief. Um, we know that the creditors want more spending cuts. They want fewer tax increases on the wealthy. They say that would stifle economic growth. There are some differences on VAT, on the labor market, and on pensions. But the feeling is that if there's a political will, those issues can be dealt with. And I think that's shared here. But the big obstacle is debt relief. Um, the Greeks say that it's entirely unrealistic to continue with the pretense that they can pay back all this debt, which now amounts to 177% uh, of GDP. They point out that the IMF agrees with them. Um, it appears they have some support. France and Italy are sympathetic, but the Germans, the Slovaks, the Latvians, and many other states are resisting quite strongly. I think a lot 
hinges on what one means by debt relief. Um, Suzanne was saying that on their way into the Eurogroup meeting today, a number of ministers said the overall nominal debt figure could not be cut. Um, Wolfgang Schäuble has even said this would breach the European treaties. But that does leave other options. You could fashion a compromise perhaps out of extended maturities on the loans or um, lower interest rates. But also a lot depends on how the Greeks um, precisely formulate their demand. Are they looking for debt relief now or would they settle for a commitment to debt relief in the future or even a commitment to sit down and hammer out a deal on that issue in four or five months' time? So then clearly debt is the big stumbling block and it's, it's a, a compromise on that, I think, is the key to unlocking a deal. Suzanne, uh, what we've been hearing from Ruan is that the signals that uh, Tsipras has been sending out appear to be designed to give the impression that he's looking for a deal and he's prepared to compromise. Is that the way it's perceived in Brussels? Yeah, just to, I mean, over the last few days since the referendum, I think there's been a sense of calm on both sides. As Erin explained there, the kind of conciliatory speech from Cyprus, and everyone here in Brussels kind of saying, look, we still want to keep Greece in the Eurozone. Now, as I speak to you here, the situation is, is changing uh, dramatically, but people here now in Brussels are saying that it's now unclear whether Greece has brought new proposals today to this meeting, that it, in fact, may not have brought us new proposals. They're waiting for tomorrow. So, you know, I think the, you know, the issue of trust and all those kind of things are going to come back into the discussions over the next few days um, and whether, you know, how committed the Greeks are to, uh, to coming some of the way with lenders and some of the other way. So, I mean, we still could see a lot of changes in the next few days before a kind of trust is back and people are ready to sign up to some kind of third deal. Finally, uh, Suzanne, what can we expect from this current phase of the talks tonight and perhaps over the next few days? Are we talking about a new deal or an agreement on the parameters of a new deal? I'd say, I mean, it's very hard to call this. It's it changing so much. And as I say, it's not even clear if the Greek, Greek side has brought proposals at this stage. Um, but I'd say, yes, we're looking very much at the parameters of the deal rather than the detail. We could be looking for some kind of a political signal from leaders that they're willing to engage in third bailout discussions rather than any kind of statement on the, on the nuts and bolts of a third program. So, yeah, I think it's more going to be around the parameters rather than a definitive statement either way on a third bailout package. I mean, in any event, a third bailout deal is going to need the unanimous agreement of 19 countries, including parliamentary approval in up to six countries. So that process in itself is going to take time. But I suppose if there was even a political signal uh, from Brussels tonight that they are prepared to even sit down and, and discuss these, this third bailout proposal, well, I suppose that is, that is more progress than, than we've seen in a, in a, in a while. And if the uh, political signal was sent from the leaders that uh, the show is back on the road and negotiations are back on track, would that be enough to justify the European Central Bank in opening up the tap uh, for liquidity and for funding for the Greek banks again? Yeah, I, I mean, to an extent, I think the ECB probably needs that. They need something to justify uh, their continued funding of the ELA to give them political cover, if you like, for keeping the banks going. Um, I mean, one of one of the ma- many uh, difficulties here is that the ECB has always said it, it will keep the banks going if it's so- if they're solvent. So essentially, the ECB is still saying they are solvent because it's keeping going with the with the funding. So I think the ECB will be looking for some kind of political signal to give it the green light to continue uh, funding. Um, before a kind of more long-term arrangement can be agreed. Suzanne Lynch in Brussels and Ruan McCormick in Athens, thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. 
here with me in studio are uh, Cliff Taylor, Managing Editor of the Irish Times, Foreign Policy Editor Patrick Smith and Irish Times columnist Paul Gillespie. Cliff, what seems to be happening now in terms of the talks is that they've taken up more or less where they left off last week, except there's an added dimension now, which is this whole issue of debt relief. And some of the uh, finance ministers, as we've been hearing from Suzanne, have gone in saying that while a debt write-down is probably not on the cards, that some kind of debt reprofiling might actually work. Uh, How would that work? It will work by stretching out the repayments uh, that Greece has to make to the international institutions, the EU, the IMF and the ECB, various ways it could technically be done. Uh, Greece's loan repayments have already been stretched out fairly significantly. And what would happen under reprofiling is basically the repayments over the next, say, decade, uh, decade and a half, the difficult years would be cut even further and the debt would be pushed out in time. That you know, in 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 uh, in reality, that is that is debt forgiveness. Uh, but it it is easier to swallow for the Northern Europeans, uh, because it doesn't actually involve a write down of the actual principle of the, of, of the debt. So if there is going to be a compromise here, and if the talks are going to get going, in in a real way, I think that's uh, that's where that part of the solution will lie. The most acute problem where the Greeks are concerned is the state of their banks, which are running out of money. The uh, European Central Bank has frozen this emergency funding that it's been uh, giving to to the Greeks, and it's also now added kind of rather stricter rules on collateral. What do they need to open up the tap again? There's a bit of fudginess around that because uh, emergency liquidity assistance is is emergency assistance that the ECB gives uh, to other banks. And, and there's very little written or published about the rules under which it operates. Uh, some general information, some small further clarification from the ECB this morning. But, you know, in reality, the ECB can decide to do to some extent what it wants to do. Uh, it needs to see, it needs to be, I suppose the key thing is it needs to be sure that banks that it is giving money to are solvent and can be seen to be solvent. And, and the twist we're in at the moment, uh, the, the difficulty we're in is that if the Greek state is judged to be insolvent or if there is a doubt over the, gol- the solvency of the Greek state, then that knocks on to the Greek banks and it knocks on to the Greek government bonds that we believe that the banks have given to the ECB as collateral for their loans. So the whole thing is tied together in that way. So what the ECB will need to see uh, is some kind of political progress towards a deal, something that underpins the solvency of the Greek state and therefore underpins the solvency of its banking system. What we don't know is uh, how far that political process has to move before the ECB will move or what pace the ECB will move at. And the problem now is with the banks closed for a period of time, things are getting really bad. The banks are reportedly, a number of the banks have have almost run out of money. There's now a severe risk that some of the banks are going to close, uh, that some of them need new capital, uh, that the depositors' money may be at risk in the kind of restructuring that will be to come. So restoring faith in the Greek banking system is now a very significant task. It's not just a question of the ECB throwing in a couple of billion euro and them all opening their doors again. There may be restructuring needed, there may be new capital needed. It may be a long time before the Greek financial system can reopen in full operation anyway. Where would they get the new capital? A good question. Uh, it, it would ideally, or, or the, the only place it could come is, is a part of a new rescue deal, so that part of the deal would, would involve new capital for the banks. 
Uh, I isn't think the, the worry role for of the of the European uh, of the ESM yeah. uh, isn't that uh, uh, isn't their role to recapitalise European banks that aren't working? It is, uh, and and. Uh, in extremists to do so without putting pressure on the on, on the national government, although those rules were, were written quite tightly, uh, I, I think when when the ESM was was set up, um, one of the key issues I think is that the depositors' money in the Greek banks, some of that may now be at risk as well, because what happened in Cyprus was that uh, big depositors lost a significant amount of their savings, and that went towards recapitalising the Cypriot banking system, uh, together with money that came in from the EU. Uh, the risk is now that something similar may happen in some of the Greek banks, such as their state of, uh, of insolvency. Uh, they don't have any other... Uh, they don't have very much in the way of... Uh, bondholder loans at the moment. They don't have very much in the way of other sources of finance. It really is just ECB money and deposits. Uh, that is that is what the Greek is on the Greek bank's balance sheets at the moment. Do we know any more than we did a week or two ago about what the consequences of a Greek exit from the euro would be for the financial system more broadly outside Greece? Not really. Uh, there's been a lot of speculation about it. Uh, there's been uh, a lot of back of the envelope calculations from, from from analysts. What we do know, I suppose, is that there will be losses for all the other European countries who have lent Greece money, whether it would be a full default or a partial default. How we managed, we don't know. We also know there will be losses for the European Central Banking System. Um, there's kind of a theological argument about how important it is when a central bank loses money because it can print the stuff itself. But nonetheless, that is a really uh, toxic issue for, for, for the Northern Europeans and the Germans in particular. Uh, so we know that would happen. What, what is very much open to question are the wider implications of it. Uh, we've seen some losses in the in the value of the euro. We've seen some, some losses in equity markets. But they've been kind of muted enough so far. So the question is, what impact is it going to have on markets? What impact is it going to have on the rates at which countries like Ireland, Spain and Portugal can borrow in the markets and raise funds? That would be a big issue for us. And at a wider level, what impact is, is it going to have on confidence and growth in Europe over the next few years? The Eurozone is kind of very slowly creeping out of recession. And it would, of course, be damaging for countries like Ireland if confidence was to be hit by a Greek exit and uh, growth was was to slow again. So a lot of uncertainties. I think the ECB and the Euro leaders are, 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 are selling the message that, that there won't be contagion. But really, we just don't know. What, in, what impact, Paul Gillespie, would a Greek exit from the Euro have on the European project? Well, it would the irrevo irrevocability of the currency union would be breached, you know? uh, and that is a very very significant indeed politically. Why? Uh, because um, uh, taking up the point of confidence, uh, there's a, there's a political dimension to that confidence as well as an economic dimension, uh, and it would open the project up to further fragmentation. Uh, including market attack, uh, if if other states uh, came under came under pressure, uh, and I think uh, it's uh, the the political profile of the uh, uh, between France and Germany, between uh, between North and South, if you like, is affected by this crisis. It's very interesting the way the French are saying are willing to talk about debt relief. Uh, or certainly debt restructuring, but even debt relief uh, to 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 Greece. Uh, the the 
older expectation uh, going back to Hollande's uh, um, when he came into power that he would be a kind of swing state between North and South. Some of that is coming back into play and the notion of a of a, a broad eurozone, uh, which includes North and South, is put in question, it seems to me, by, by this. It's ironic that um, uh, Varoufakis talked a lot about macroeconomics. He irritated uh, the other finance ministers by lecturing them on it. But the point he had, it seems to me, was about the, the, the way the system of the euro was designed. Uh, and whether you talk about uh, euro bonds or, 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 or transfers or, or sufficient resources to be able to do the job with Greece uh, and the weaker economies, uh, which happen to be mainly in the south, is put in question by that. This whole crisis over Greece can be perceived in different ways depending on where you are or who you are. One perception uh, in among some uh, Northern Europeans is that this really is about the rules-based system of the European Union and that the European Union is nothing unless it is a system of rules that everybody must abide by. And uh, conceding and too much to Greece is uh, potentially very uh, disruptive and very damaging to this essential element of the European Union. Another perception, though, is that this has been a kind of an unmasking of the European system and that the European system has found itself locking in various policies in various institutions in such a way that instead of uh, that, that these policies are impervious to any democratic change and that instead perhaps of defending the citizens from the markets as the state might be expected to that it appears to be defending the markets from the citizens mm -hmm. well um Varoufakis, again, to go back to him, criticised uh, 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 an economic and monetary union that was so fixated uh, on rules and was seen to be incapable uh, at ministerial level of discussing the economic uh, both theory and practice that should lie behind the rules. And you could, I mean, the, the, the system is a system of power. It's a system of ideology as well as a system of, of rules. Uh, and, of course, the, the rules put into play very much reflect uh, existing power systems, including the power systems around Germany, uh, where this notion of rules and very strict adherence to them, uh, um, uh, a certain kind of treatment of debt, the profile of the rules put in place, were actually represent a certain kind of approach to econo political economy. And those who say it's unmasking that are, of course, saying this is the austerity of neoliberalism and so on. And whether you buy fully into that kind of argument is one thing, but the the danger of uh, of uh, having such a fixation on rules which actually arise out of one kind of po set of policy profiles, uh, knowing that the system is badly designed, uh, is an unmasking. Yes, it's a politicisation of this issue, but it deserves to be politicised. Paddy Smith. Yes, I think that what you've seen in the course of the last few years uh, in terms of the evolution of, of, of the European Union is it's, it's the expansion of, it, of its economic and, and monetary dimension in ways that reflect uh, processes happening at national level. For example, uh, we take the establishment of, a, of central banks uh, at European level, mirroring the... Uh, detaching of central banks from governments in, in uh, nation states. And the argument is that they have a technocratic function effectively to safeguard a currency 
and that they shouldn't be subject to to political or democratic control. So what what has happened in in the development of the European Union is is that those processes going on in member states are being mirrored, at um, but they're facing up now to a crisis of legitimacy and and arguably, the economic crisis that is um, that the euro is undergoing is is matched pretty much equally by a political crisis of legitimacy, which has been seeing. Uh, Eurosceptical movements uh, uh, throughout uh, throughout Europe, and the, the European Union leadership should be addressing that precisely that question of political legitimacy. Now, instead of which, uh, we had a report uh, a couple of weeks ago from the so-called five presidents. Uh, which was talking about how... These five presidents are the, f- the presidents of the five European institutions. Yeah, the five institutions, the Commission, the ECB, the Parliament, the uh, Council. And uh, they were arguing that uh, economic and monetary union has to proceed to the logical um, integration of, of the European economies to a much greater extent. And that mainly means supervision by Brussels of people's budgets. It means a number of other technical mechanisms like means of insuring deposits and and the like anyway it it came out with a lot of proposals uh moving that integration forward moving that supervision to to a different level now they haven't been agreed yet but the emphasis on this sort of technocratic dimension of of economic and monetary union is precisely it seems to me going in the wrong direction when when they should actually be saying how do we legitimize this process with 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 voters that's an afterthought in the five presidents cliff uh, uh, cliff taylor is it is this uh issue of uh, these kind of economic systems and economic rules which are which some people in Europe are saying are anti-democratic is this perhaps not really simply a European issue but rather uh, it's a consequence of being part of a globalized financial and economic system yeah I think that's right and I think I suppose to to, to, to come back to the practicalities of how the thing has run over the last uh, during the crisis it's 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 really been run by uh, departments of finance and central bankers, uh, and de- departments of finance and central bankers are afraid of instability in the markets and they're afraid of instability in banking systems. Uh, therefore, the thing that they have given priority to right through the crisis is uh, keeping the bank solvent, uh, putting taxpayers' money into the banks I- if required, and avoiding you know massive upheavals in the financial markets where, where they can. So if you, if you go back and, and look at the Greek crisis on the first bailout program in 2010, uh, you, you could argue, I think, quite convincingly that a lot of the uh, international banks and investors who lent to Greece should have lost money at that stage. Uh, instead, what happened was that uh, official money was lent to Greece. That A lot of that official money went to repay those lenders. Okay, there was a restructuring in 2012, too late uh, in, in hindsight and not enough also also in hindsight. And where Greece is left now is uh, most of its loans are from official lenders. Uh, so it's turned into a huge political issue for, for countries like Finland and Slovakia and, uh, and Germany itself. Uh, the Slovakian finance minister going in this morning and the Finnish ministers were emphasising the extent of their loans to Greece as a percentage of their national budgets. This is these are now big political issues for them. So, so, so that's how we've got into this bind. 
Uh, but I think it, it started with the prioritisation that was given to uh, the markets and the banking system back when, in the first few years of the crisis book and fear of European laymans and all the chaos and costs that that would, so so that did, would create. So did they have a choice, though? Did they, did, I, I, you know, this, uh, they appear to have yeah. chosen to bail out all of these private institutions yeah. because they felt that the alternative sure. was the collapse of their financial system. Yeah. I don't think it was done from a malign point of view. I think it was done from, from a practical point of view. And I think the same... The same happened in in Ireland uh, via the guarantee and uh, and subsequently our, the terms of our own bailout. Uh, the argument at the time was that uh, imposing big losses would have led to even greater chaos. Uh, we just don't know whether that would have been the case or not. But I think looking back on it, uh, at every time when a decision had to be made, the decision was always made in favour of the investors of the banking system. Uh, the bias was always in that direction. Uh, and even late in the day, for example, at the time when Ireland entered the bailout, when I, I think at that stage there was a strong case to uh, to impose a haircut on, on some of the senior positions, you know, it wasn't done. And the problem, I suppose, for the European citizen is mm-hmm. this idea that if you are a Greek and you elect this left-wing government, uh, Syriza, with a mandate to mm-hmm. change the economic policies, and then uh, not only do you do that, but then you have a referendum, which is a resounding rejection of the terms that are demanded by the creditors, and yet there's no alternative to... Uh, to what's on offer from the Europeans is was the are these elections and referendums entirely futile gestures, Paul? No, they're not. I mean, I, you you are getting a, a, obviously a Europeanization of of economic policy by, by definition uh, in the eurozone, but you're also getting what I describe as a politicization uh, at a European level within the national politics. So you're getting a Europeanization of national politics, and so does the 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 issues that you describe, for example, the issues of debt and, and the debt burden and what you do about it, it's becoming a potent issue in, in, in Irish politics, in Spanish politics, in Portuguese politics, not always along the same lines. It has nuances and so on, uh, uh, in, in, as you say, in, but it's also in Slovak and Finnish politics. So this entanglement of, of the national and the European is something that goes back to the legitimacy question that Paddy was raising. Um, and it's a political problem that they have as well as it's not simply a rules-based economic policy issue uh, as you know, controlled by finance ministries. It's, it's really a far deeper political question. But, Paddy, the Greek referendum was uh, an entirely national uh, event, was it not? Well, it was, uh, it was also an expression, uh, indeed, of national identity. Mm. Is that a problem? Well, it's, it's a profoundly important democratic uh, expression of the Greek people. And in terms of, of Greek politics, it, it, is, uh, it is something that legitimised the government, it, it, uh, it legitimised the strategy. It seems to have, as, as Suzanne and, and, and Ruin were pointing out, it seems to have brought government and opposition together in, a, in, a, in an interesting way. So it's a very important uh, uh, thing in, in, in terms of Greek politics. But in, an, at a European level, you can't say that that's an expression of democratic uh, process. Uh, it, it, it actually is about atomization of democracy in, in, uh, in European uh, politics. Uh, what we really need to see is, is the creation of what uh, uh, academics have called a European demos, in, in which 
we're taking decisions collectively and and we have to find some way of doing it. And I'm not saying it's easy. It's extremely difficult uh, to do that. But the Greek... Uh, the, the Greeks were talking a great deal about how this was an expression of democracy, uh, but it wasn't an expression of European democracy. Is that true, Paul? No, I, I somewhat disagree. I think that the, the, the European democracy that we would wish to see is going to emerge from national democracies and, and the, the, the conjunction of, of, of national and European politics in the resolution of this crisis, whichever way it get, gets resolved, is going to be that, that expression. So it's going to express that and the institutional change or, uh, um, or the kind of party political change or other kinds of demo- transnational democratic change that might emerge will come from this conjunction, as I say, of the national and the European. Uh, we, we're seeing very similar you know, political movements around, around Europe, both on left and right and, of course, in the centre. Uh, and uh, it seems to me that you can validly link the national to the European uh, in analysing this crisis. You don't have to wait, as it were, on a European demos to emerge. The, Euro- the, the European demos emerges through the Europeanisation of national politics. Part of the folklore of the European <laughs> Union is that every time there's a crisis that uh, Europe emerges stronger. It seizes every crisis as an opportunity for further integration and the European project uh, becomes stronger as a result of this. Could this be the exception to that, Paddy? Well, I certainly don't <laughs> think it's the, it's proving that. Certainly, it's, it's very difficult. Uh, um, I, I think uh, it, it's certainly testing... Uh, Europe in a way that uh, will will show up a lot of the flaws in, in the um, uh, institutional and political structures of Europe. I think in in the long run, I would hope that Europe will come out stronger. We will understand better where the weaknesses are and and, be, and force politicians, uh, the political class, to to begin to address them. Paul. I agree. I think that particularly Germany faces a huge problem. Germany has done very well indeed out of the Eurozone, an export economy, uh, creating this penumbra around it. It now now faces a big choice about how to uh, restructure and reorganise it in order, if it wants to maintain the system, including the South. Cliff? No, I was just going to make the point that uh, I think... As Paul said, the crisis has pointed out the need for closer integration in a, in a lot of different ways uh, in a single currency area. And, you know, if that is the way to move forward, uh, it, it quite possibly is the way to move forward. But I think the question is, can everybody be on that train? Uh, can the southern and northern European countries find some accommodation to travel together on that? Uh, or, or, or are we inevitably looking at kind of a longer term fracturing of the euro into an inner core and an outer? Cliff Taylor, Paul Gillespie and Paddy Smith, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer JJ Vernon, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.